you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be keying in on three verses today, Luke 2, 22 through 24. Been stuck in this passage for stuck. I say that in a in a positive way. Stuck, sitting, thinking, soaking in this passage for uh, for uh, I guess maybe a little over a week now, a couple weeks. And uh, all, it has uh, struck me in this week. You know, most of what we do when we come to the Christmas season, of course, we do some of the birth narratives that happen in Matthew's account the first, uh, first two chapters there, or we'll do maybe uh, the first chapter and a half or so of Luke, right? Usually we get down to the part where the, the angels are out, they announce the birth of Christ out in the field, and the shepherds come, and then they go back, and then uh, little attention is given to the verses that follow, some of the verses that we'll be in today. So, like even this morning, we, we have the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? That's Luke 2. But then there's no follow-up song to that, like, Hark the Old Man Simeon Speaks, right? What, why, why not pay attention to what's going on then? So anyway, so that's kind of where I've been just thinking, reflecting, and uh, want to draw your attention uh, to some things, hopefully, that we can glean in a right, Christ-exalting way in just a couple verses here. So let me actually start at verse 21 and read through verse 24. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll bring out a couple things that we see in this passage. So, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 21, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is the word of the Lord, as brief and as odd as it may sound. Let's pray. Father, would you guard our hearts from trying to... Um, improve upon Your Word, to, to try to make uh, Your Word say something that it does not, either because of uh, our creativity or ingenuity, uh, thinking as if we could improve upon what it is that You have already said. Uh, instead, give us humble hearts that tremble at Your Word, that take Your truth and are able to not only understand it, but to love it for what it communicates to us about your ways and your work in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be our guide now, we ask, in this time that we spend in the Scriptures. Amen. So one of the things, let me, let me preface before we, we go back to these two verses, let me show you some things that, that happen in the, the immediate or the surrounding context of Luke 2 here that will help sort of key us in or give us a, a sharper focus for verses 22 through 24. Uh, five times, if you start, say, at verse 22 and you run through verse 40, which seems to be the, the end of the section, five times in verses 22 through 40, you have 
an explicit mention of the law, meaning the Old Testament law that the people received from the Lord through Moses. Three of those occurrences happen in the verses that we just read. So if you go back to verse 22, when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. And then again in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And then towards the end of verse 24, according to what was said in the law of the Lord. And then just to point out where it shows elsewhere in the subsequent verses, if you go down to the end of verse 27, the child Jesus was brought in by his parents to carry out for him the custom of the law. And then towards the end of the section in verse 39, we get sort of this summary statement at the end of this little episode in the temple. Verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Everything according to the law of the Lord. So in this section then, in verses 22 through 40, one of the things that Luke is doing is that he is, he is intending to draw some sort of a connection between Christ's growth and development as a, as a baby, even as you continue to go through chapter 2, even into early childhood, he's trying to draw a connection between who Christ is and how Christ is growing, what his life is like, a connection between that and the law. And in part, I think what Luke is doing is that he's intending not just to show us that, well, oh, look at Jesus, you know, wasn't God good to give Jesus some really godly, religious, devout parents? That's true, but I don't think that's the point that Luke is after. Rather, I think Luke is trying to show us that from the very beginning, everything that pertained to Jesus' life, growth, and ultimately His ministry, in some way was a fulfillment or a perfecting of what God had revealed in the law. That what Jesus did from the very beginning of His life here on earth was in many ways meant to provide something for His people that the law could never give to them. All right, so two things then in these couple verses that we see that Christ provides for us. One, we could start off and we could say that, uh, that Christ provides purification for His people. All right, so here's what we're going to do. You're going you're to need to hold your place here in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to have to flip back to the Old Testament so that you can get a, a better glimpse as to what's happening here. So if you have your notes or an outline in front of you, you see that we've got Luke 2.22 with the cross-reference for Leviticus 12, 1 through 4, and 6 through 8. So hold your place in Luke 2 and go back into the Old Testament, back to Leviticus chapter 12. Most of you were probably there in your devotions this morning anyway, so your Bible just probably falls open naturally to that section of Scripture. Okay, so Luke 2.22 says, when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. And then in verse 24, it mentions the sacrifice that's offered at the temple 
in connection with the purification. Here's, here's why this is going on. So look in, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation. She shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed." That's what's going on in Luke 2.22. And then skip down a few verses later, verse 6, Leviticus 12.6, when the days of her purification are completed, that's almost the, the phrasing that Luke himself uses, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the door of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. So, when the days of her purification were completed, according to the law of Moses... Mary, along with her husband, brings Jesus to the temple to accomplish what appears to be two things, the first of which is to fulfill her purification requirements according to the law. All right, let me, let me be clear here. This, this command for purification for the woman who has given birth, this, this is not to say something about the woman herself as if the woman is naturally unclean, like she's a lower-class spiritual citizen. It's not even to say that in giving birth the woman has done anything wrong, right? I mean, the, the Old Testament will go on and on and on to talk about how children are a gift from the Lord. Right? It was His blessing that caused His people to multiply. So, to receive that blessing from the Lord cannot, can't make you a sinner. It's not the, the conceiving or the delivering even of the child that, that makes you sinful. Rather, the, when, when the Old Testament says that the woman who has given birth is unclean, it's referring to a ritual impurity. You're like, oh, yes, that explains it, all right? Meaning simply this, ritual impurity means you, it, it may not actually be that you have done anything wrong, sinful, right? You haven't broken God's law, but because God is who He is, in your current condition, you can't enter into the sanctuary or the presence of God or participate in the religious life of God's people because you are not presentable in the condition in which you currently find yourself. Does, does that make more sense? So here's a simple example, right? So we've got some kids here. I don't, we're Hutch and… Yes, okay, so is Hutch over there? Okay, so Hutch here, he likes to play outside. That's what boys like to do. 
He goes outside and he plays, and he's out there for hours. Hutch has not gotten in trouble at all. He has not broken a single rule that his parents have laid down for the house. He hasn't broken into anyone's house, hasn't broken into anyone's car, has not graffitied the garage or anything like that. He's just out playing. But because he's doing just what kids do in normal life, and he's out there for a couple hours, his hands are filthy, dirty, crusty, cruddy. His pants are dirty and wet, right? He's been down at the lake. The dog has taken the opportunity to lick him in the face. He's got dog hair on his, on his clothes, all right? None of those things are to say anything bad about Hutch. But when Hutch comes in, when the, when the family ritual of dinner time is called, it's time for the family to come together, we're going to sit down at the table and we're going to enjoy fellowship and eat a meal. When Hutch begins to come into the house, does Hutch go immediately and sit down at the table? I'm guessing no. I'm guessing what Hutch is told in that situation is, okay, yeah, you can come eat, but you can't come eat like that. Go wash up, or go wash up and change your clothes, or go wash up and change your clothes and take a bath, right? However dirty or filthy, whatever it is, the issue is not that Hutch has done something wrong and has to be banished as punishment. It's just that in his current state and condition, he's not presentable. He's not able to enter in and have a normal meal with the family. That's what the purity and impurity laws are about in the Mosaic Covenant. It's a way to say because God is who He is, because He is pure life, if you have the contamination of death on you, you can't enter into meet with the God of life. If God is perfectly whole, there is no lack or deficiency in Him, if you lose some of your energy or strength or some of your body, bodily integrity, you can't come in less than whole to meet with a God who is whole and perfect. You, you have to get those things taken care of before you can, come eat, you can come in and meet with God and eat in fellowship with His people. That's what's going on with Mary here. So even when you go back to the Old Testament, the issue is not first and foremost about women per se because there were other commands and laws about purity and impurity that, that dealt specifically and exclusively even with men, things that made men uniquely impure and unable to enter into the presence of a holy and pure God. So it has been over a month that Mary has been ceremonially unclean, which means that she cannot participate in any religious observances with God's people. She can't touch any consecrated items, anything that would be used in worship, and in many ways would probably have to separate herself and keep herself at a distance until the allotted time had passed, until she had been made clean, made whole again, and could now resume normal life with God and with God's people. Mary is shut out, albeit temporarily, from the presence of God and participating with God's people. Mary, you, you know Mary, right? Mary's the one that when the angel came 
to announce that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. He referred to her as favored one. The Lord's favor rests on you. Mary's the favored one, but she still is kept out on the fringes. Mary herself says, after rejoicing with her cousin Elizabeth, from this time on, all people will count me blessed. But not so blessed that she gets to walk into the presence of the Lord whenever she wants. As favored and as blessed as what she is, she still needs to get cleaned up before she can come into God's presence. This is the woman who, over the last month, not only gave birth to God incarnate, nine months prior she carried God incarnate, gave birth to God incarnate, and has been feeding and keeping Him alive for over a month, and even all of that that she has done directly in the service of God does not give her the freedom or the privilege to waltz into the temple precincts as if nothing had changed. Right? The, the, the purity and impurity laws in the Old Testament that is being brought to bear even on someone as special and devout and genuine as Mary is meant to remind God's people about the separation, the distance that exists between God as divine and man as creature. They, there are things that are unique to us as creaturely beings that cause a break or hinder us from entering into the presence of God. We don't even have to necessarily do any, any sinful act just by virtue of the fact that we are creatures. We are prevented from entering into and enjoying full access to God. Do you get that? Even if you could clean up your act, even if from the moment that you woke up this morning to the moment that you walked into this church, you had not committed a single sin in thought, in word, in deed, you would still not be presentable to an infinite divine Creator. Just by virtue of the fact that you are a creature means that there is a distance, a gulf between you and your Creator. He is that different from us. Don't also miss the significance of something like this for Mary, in that Mary is as close, was as close as anyone could be to God incarnate, and yet even that proximity to God in the flesh did not create purification for her. Listen, Edgewood people, church is a great, glorious blessing that God has given, right? That he, when He saves us and brings us into union with His Son, He not only unites us with His Son, but with His people, right? But there's a sense in which we are always tempted to think that once we're in, we're, you know, we're in, we just 
set it on cruise control, or if I just get a little bit of religion, or I just have a little bit of uh, behavior modification, that really is what God is after, and I'll be good to go. That's not true. You can be the greatest systematician that the theological world has ever seen. You can be the greatest scholar, Bible teacher. You can have the Scriptures memorized perfectly. You could wax eloquently for hours and hours on end about the mysteries of the gospel in Jesus Christ and be dead in the filthiness of your sin. So we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So on the one hand, Mary is going to go to the temple to see to it that in her devotion to the Lord, in her obedience to the commands of the Lord, that she is declared clean and pure, able to enter back into the religious life of God's people. And in her offering up of this small, pitiful little sacrifice, there will be reason for her to rejoice and to be glad. But with that rejoicing about the cleansing and the purification that the Lord is going to pronounce on her through His priest... With that rejoicing is always going to come the reminder that the reason that I'm here doing this again is because inevitably life makes me unclean. I'll be back here again. And so it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you could develop some sort of spiritual pride. Look at how well I'm adhering to the law. Look at how well I'm obeying. Look at all the things that I'm doing for God. And yet, the problem is, is that God's people began to miss the fact that because they had to repeat these things over and over again, what God was intending to tell them is that you never ultimately arrive at a place where you have made yourself acceptable to me. You cannot do this you still need purification. Which is one of the reasons why, in the very opening verses of Hebrews, we're told that when the Son had made purification for sins, He sat down. The permanent lasting, irrevocable cleansing and purification that even someone like Mary herself could never find, 
the impurity that would come her way and our way just by virtue of the fact that we live life in as creatures in a broken world. That kind of purity and cleansing that we could never find, that we could never maintain, Christ gives to us, and we don't even have to work for it. The question is not whether you are able to purify yourself, but whether you have someone who is going to give you the purification that lasts. Mary could not find purification in her own works. Mary certainly cannot provide purification for anyone else. But Jesus comes so that according to all the righteous requirements of the law, He can not only forgive willful law-breaking, but He can also declare us to be permanently clean and presentable in the presence of an infinite and holy God. Number two, not only does Christ give us purification, but Christ gives us lifelong devotion to God. And by that I mean it's His lifelong devotion to God that counts for us. So back in Luke chapter 2, we're told in verse 22 that they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So you want to hold your place here, and you want to go back to Exodus chapter 13, and from Exodus 13, we'll go to Numbers 18. Start at Exodus chapter 13. Here's what's being referred to by Luke in 2.23. Exodus 13, 1 and 2, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sanctify or set apart to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. You just pause right there for a second. We don't have time to get into it, but this is built on the imagery of, of God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. When God went through and He slaughtered the firstborn, but He said, because Israel is my firstborn, death will not touch him. As a way to remind them of that constantly, He said, okay, because you are my firstborn, as a nation, are my firstborn among all the other nations. As a way to reenact or remember that, that you're devoted to me, every firstborn son that you have is going to be devoted to me. I have special claim on that firstborn son. Turn to Numbers chapter 18. Later, though, God says, Instead of actually requiring that you give me every firstborn child, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to take the tribe of Levi, and I'm going to let the Levites stand in place of the firstborn of all 
the Israelites. In other words, instead of having to give me your firstborn son, you're going to give me one of your tribes, and that tribe will be uniquely set apart for my service and my work. That's in part of the explanation as to why the Levites then served as priests. They were uniquely given over to God as a portion or a representative of the nation to serve God in a unique and special way. But even though he allowed for the Levites to take the place of all the other firstborn males, he said, but that still is going to come at a cost. You, you have an option. You can either bring your son and devote him to the Lord, hand him over to me for special service, or you can redeem him, you can buy him back so that he can go back with you and live, quote-unquote, normal, regular life. So Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you will surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. As to their redemption price, from a month old, you will redeem them by your valuation five shekels in silver. Now go back to Luke chapter 2. When they're a month old, which lines up pretty well with the amount of time that a woman has to remain separated for purification purposes, after a month you, get, you are declared clean, you can resume normal life in the worship and service of God. When a child is a month old, a male child, you bring him, and instead of handing him over to special service of the Lord, you pay a price in order to keep him in the family serving you and the needs of the family. So we're back in Luke chapter 2. Do you notice what's not mentioned in Luke 2, 23 or 24? If you were going to redeem your firstborn son to bring him back home with you, to keep him in service of the family, what, what was required? Five shekels. Anyone, anyone see five shekels in Luke 2? No, no five shekels. Instead, what we're told is that Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to present Him to the Lord at the temple. And because Luke will mention the sacrifice that Mary had to offer for her purification, but he does not mention what the parents would have to pay to redeem their firstborn son, the, the impression or the picture that seems to be painted here is that Joseph and Mary are taking Jesus to the temple to present Him as a child who would be in special service to the Lord. Go a little bit further in Luke chapter 2. I think this is one of the things that comes out with that episode of Jesus being lost by his parents and being found in the temple. You remember after Jesus has grown up, right? He's now, he's now a young boy, maybe, you know, 12 or so. Parents make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They do all the religious things, and then they're heading back home. And they notice after a day on the road, where's Jesus? They look around, can't find him. They go back to Jerusalem. They're looking around for a couple days. They still can't find him. Ultimately, they find him in the temple. Skip down in Luke chapter 2. Verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, 
Why have you treated us this way? You scared your mother half to death, right? That's sort of the sentiment. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus seems to know and affirm at a very young age that my first responsibility is in service to God the Father. My first devotion, my, pri- my, my preeminent loyalty is not to my earthly mother or father, but to my heavenly Father. That's where my life is going. That's how my life is being oriented. And of course, Jesus then provides what no one else in human history was ever able to give God, which is a life wholly consecrated, devoted, given over to the Lord to please Him and to accomplish His will. As far back as Deuteronomy, the people are told, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Who lived up to that kind of commitment and devotion? Was there ever anyone in Israel's history who was able to meet that command? No. But Jesus comes, the eternal Son of God takes on human flesh, a human existence. He enters into time and space. He submits Himself, even though He is God, because He has taken on our human nature, He submits Himself to the law and shows that in every conceivable way, my life from beginning to end, every moment of the day is going to be given over completely to my Father in heaven. We cannot even conceive of what that kind of devotion means. Right? How do you, how do you get that idea across? I've, I was flipping through other passages trying to say, where, where's a passage that sort of communicates this kind of a thing? So you've got an example of Jesus in John chapter 4, where Jesus has been preaching and teaching and ministering to people all day. The disciples come to Him and they say, hey, Jesus, you haven't had anything to eat for a while. Have something to eat. And Jesus says, one of His famous cryptic statements, right? says, I have food that you don't know about. They look around. Someone slip him some bread. What, do, what, what is he talking about? We run to the store while we had our backs turned. And he goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Just, just sit and let that sink in for a minute. What, what is food to us? Food is what keeps us going. Food is what keeps us from crumbling in on ourselves and wasting away. Food is what we use as an excuse to gather people together to have a good time. Food is one of the ways that we celebrate, that we experience the good life. Food will sometimes drag our lazy, tired bones out of bed in the morning just so that we can get a decent meal when we want to sleep in, right? Food does all of that. Jesus says, my food, 
What sustains me, what keeps me going, what gives me joy and delight is doing the will of my Father. Right? So here, this, this is very simple and very crude, but this is, this is something like when we wake up on a Sunday morning, right? Sunday comes the day after Christmas in, in the calendar year, and we think, oh my goodness, yesterday was just exhausting. Just surely God would understand if I just called it a day and stayed home. You understand that Jesus would wake up the day after Christmas, having done all the things that you did and then some, and He would wake up eager to go gather with God's people because His delight, what woke Him up in the morning was, I want to find another way to commune with God and with His people. That was His life. That's what God required of His people. Now, you tell me, how are you going to be able to mimic that kind of devotion? How are you ever going to get your life to a point where every waking moment of the day is lived in conscious reflection of the fact that you are there to do the will of your Father, and that is what you love to do? If you're anything like me, you will never come close to anything like that. And so what do you do then when you say, on the one hand, God commands, He demands that we love Him with heart, soul, and mind, and yet I can't do it? You've run to Jesus. And you say, because you, in your human life, gave yourself over to do perfectly the will of the Father, not just in action, but even in attitudes and affections. I need your dedication. I need your devotion and your obedience. I need that to count for me, or I am lost. Hebrews chapter 10. Go back there again. Pick up at verse 5. Because sacrifices, because washings, because rituals could never ultimately get God's people to where He wanted them to be, Hebrews 10.5, therefore, when He, when Christ comes into the world, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will. Jesus does in His obedience what hundreds and thousands and millions of sacrifices and washings and vows could never do. He gives to His Father perfect lifelong obedience from the heart. And because that obedience and that devotion is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord, to God the Father, then we're told that anyone who would connect themselves to Christ, that obedience that delighted the Father, that perfect obedience gets transferred over to you, and God counts it as yours for the sake of His Son.
Listen, people, you wake up on certain days or you have those dawning realizations that a week, two weeks, a month, a year has gone by, and you feel like you have wasted it in terms of any kind of spiritual productivity or that your life has not been wholly given over to the Lord and you're tempted to despair or you're tempted to try to make it up for God as if you ever could. What you don't need to do first and foremost is to say, well, I'm just going to run harder. I'm going to get up earlier, right? I'm going to make myself more miserable. What you need to do is to say, I need to run to Jesus. I can't give to God what He demands, but Christ can and He already has. We'll close here. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. All of this is done. Christ submitting Himself to live a weak and frail human life, submitting Himself to the requirements of the law to give a perfect life from beginning to end to His Father. All of that was done so that God could be shown to be glorious and good and loving and worthy of worship and delight, but it's done so that anyone who would turn to get into that kind of life can share in it freely. Galatians chapter 4. Pick up at verse 4, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God." It's not just that Jesus lives a perfect life so that He can pay our sin debt. He does that, and that is a glorious, freeing truth. We do not fear judgment anymore. But all that Jesus did, the richness of His obedience and fulfilling every requirement of the law, even to the point of death on a cross and His resurrection, paid not only our sin debt, but paid our adoption fees as well. So that for anyone who comes into a relationship with the one and only Son, if I'm related to the Son, that means I'm related to the Father. If I'm related to the Son, I'm a brother or I'm a sister. The Father is my Father. He redeemed us from the works of the law. He redeemed us from our sins so that we could have adoption, and so that when we do set out to live a life that is increasingly purified, that is increasingly devoted to the Lord, we're not doing it as slaves answering to a taskmaster. We're doing it as sons and daughters who delight to please their Father because their hearts have been changed. Do you know Jesus that way? Do you have that because of Jesus? 
Do you have a settled confidence that there is nothing that you can bring before God that would lay any claim on Him, that would make you acceptable in His sight outside of what Christ has already done? And do you joyfully lay hold of Christ and all of His blessings and all of the payments that He made so that you can lay claim to your adoption as a son and a daughter of God the Father? Do you know, do you have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, calling out Abba, Father, the very spirit of sonship that Christ enjoyed is the spirit of sonship that He gives to us as well. And all of that was done through the incarnation of Christ. He made Himself weak so that we could be strong. He made Himself poor so that we could become rich. He made Himself like us so that we could become like Him. Let's pray. Father, we want to sing with Your church, praise be to God for His indescribable gift. Jesus, we praise You for Your willingness to suffer and die to redeem a broken and messy and unclean people and to make them the bride to make them sons and daughters of God. Holy Spirit, we thank You and praise You for Your regenerating work that cleanses our hearts and minds from dead works and gives us not only a desire, but actually gives us the ability by faith to walk in ways that bring pleasure to our Father in heaven. Lord, we ask that You would continue to keep us mindful and grateful of all the things that have been purchased for us by the life of Your Son, so that we too could walk in newness of life. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we worship together? voice to him today.